Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with sociologist Nicholas Christakis. There is a shorter, produced version of this, as always, wherever you found this podcast. Are we good? Okay. All right. Excellent. Are you in New Haven? I am. Okay. Um, great. Well, I just want to plunge in. I don't like to do too much um, mm. speaking ahead of time. Uh, I did. I. Well, yeah. Let's just start, and then we'll talk. I was. It was. I'm so glad that I saw your presentation at OnQ because that really helped me. Get oh it. wow! Just, you. I. I hadn't realized that's how we connected. Well, yeah. Well, remember, I was there. Yes, and that, but, but I had forgotten. Right, yeah, that's how he does. And and mm. uh, so I just couldn't stop thinking about it. Um, mm. So you were born in New Haven. Um, yes. <laughs> where you are now. Um, yes. And it sounds like your parents were both. It's like the circle of life. Right, you know? right. But they were Greek and they were, they yes. were Fulbright scholars, graduate students. Yeah, how do you know that? That's right. I, I have done I mean, my homework. You're going to be amazed at how much I know about you now. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. They, uh, their stories, and I don't know how much you want to go into it, but it's sort of an amazing story, in particular in my mother's case. My, my father came from uh, kind of a middle-class background in Greece. Uh, his, his parents' story is also quite interesting. But nevertheless, my dad um, wanted to be an actor, but his father insisted that he go into physics. <laughs> and so my father winds up as a Fulbright scholar at Princeton in the 1950s, arriving just after Einstein dies. Hmm. Uh, and my mother, who came from a kind of well-to-do family in Greece, astonishingly had in her dad a man who was willing to educate his daughters, hmm. which I have to emphasize is really unusual for a man of his generation in Greece. Right. And so she got into um, Vassar and um, also on a Fulbright and comes to the United States. So they independently come and then they're set up through the Greek community here and et cetera. Ah. <laughs> and then they both go to graduate school at Yale, right? And that's where I'm that's born. Where in New you Haven. Were. Yeah. And my daughter was also my daughter was born when um, I was at the Divinity School, and she was also born at Yale New Haven Hospital. Oh wow! With a cast of thousands, I had no idea yes. when, until my son yes. was born that everybody's every every in every uh, room in a hospital there are not legions of. Um, Learners, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Residents, like, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah. So, um, so you know, I, 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 I start most of my conversations, whoever I'm speaking to, to inquire about the religious or spiritual background of someone's childhood, however you would hmm. define that. Now, I, I've, I've seen you well, say that you were raised on a heavy diet of Greek mythology. I don't know if that if that's where your mind would go with that. Well, not on the religious sense necessarily. Mm -hmm. I mean, on the on the Greek mythology, yes, that's true. And uh, just as a sidelight, there is uh, some attempts in Greece right now to resurrect literally the ancient Greek pantheon. I actually forgot. 
I forget the formal name for that religion, you know, in the ancient mm. Greek gods. There's mm-hmm. a name for it. And there's some people who are trying to reclaim the temples and dress in that way and believe in Zeus and Poseidon and Dionysus and Hades and, and so forth. No, I was absolutely raised on a very heavy diet of Greek mythology and uh, love it and still find it a, a source of wisdom in my life, um, in particular the Iliad and the Odyssey, in yeah. particular the Iliad. But anyway, no, I went to Greek Orthodox Church when I was a boy. I was baptized in the Greek Orthodox Church, as one had to be in those days. And um, I now, as an adult, I very much appreciate the ritual of the Greek Orthodox Church and the smells and bells and the uh, pantokrator, you know, the the, the uh, icon that's in the dome, you know, mm-hmm. of God above you. Right. Uh, and the iconography. And, and I can read Greek and I, I love deciphering the names of the saints and going to ancient Byzantine churches, of which I've been to many. And so culturally now, that's very important to me, certainly. And But as a child, I I did not like the Greek church because I couldn't understand it. The liturgy right. was in a, yeah, in a kind of high Greek and you had to sit still. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I, I like churches where or places of worship where children are welcome and it's understood that they'll be noisy and messy and um, – I kind of like the kind of meeting house function of churches where people chat, you know, before the service begins and all rather than sit quietly. So which is not the Greek tradition. So right. High um, so I the story in my childhood is, is that my mother and father used to take me to the Greek Orthodox Church. I want to say it was St. Constantine, but I can't remember in, in Greece, in, in Washington, D.C. when I was growing up. And um one day I uh, I was so annoyed by this that I vomited in the aisle and my parents decided <laughs> okay. that that I would not be taken back. <laughs> that but, was um, it. That was it. Yes, that was my childish way of – but what then happened is when I was uh, in seventh grade, I got admitted to uh, – I had a very uh, – for various reasons, I don't know if you're interested. But anyway, I, I had a rough um, elementary school experience and miraculously I was admitted to this very good – a, a boys' school in, in Washington, D.C. called St. Albans, which was yeah. St. Albans Episcopal School for Boys. Yeah. And I start there in seventh grade, and basically my religious upbringing then is quite rigorous. This is in the 80s. You know, we had to take classes in in theology, and um, we went to chapel twice a week, and we had very progressive priests who I came to adore. And my kind of, um, you know, my sort of religious touchstones became the Episcopal Church, the Episcopal Liturgy, the Episcopal Hymns, mm-hmm. um, you know, the the readings that were done uh, in English from, you know, the Bible. And 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 that was sort of my religious upbringing. And I, I would describe myself as, as um, agnostic, but um, – with a high propensity to religiosity. Oh, okay. That's uh, so how I would describe myself. <laughs> we, talk about, we could talk about that for a couple mm. of hours. For that. I love that. Mm. Um, we, Chris, Chris is asked, could you, it sounded like there was a, a technology noise, an email coming mm. in or a Yes, phone I, I turned off. Oh, the, good. Okay. I switched my phone to good. airplane mode. Excellent. I'm sorry. Okay. No problem. I um, usually do that, but I spaced. Yeah. No, that, it happens to all of us. So, you know, so what I, what I'm interested, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, in, I'm always interested in. It seems to me that that a lot that the existential questions that a lot of us pursue and the moral questions that a lot of us end up that drive a lot of us through our lives started surfacing early in life. And and when I look at your story, it seems to me um, 
that there's also this direct line between what you study and are fascinated by, fascinated by, um, and this is a story also that you tell at the beginning of the Blueprint book, of of being in Greece with your mother in July 1974, in this moment of great societal turmoil, mm-hmm. um, and seeing seeing your mother almost transformed by that. Mm. Um, it feels to me like that really that stayed with you and in that that the questions that arose in you then the observations um are still with you today well i i think there is a connection between many of my you know my own life experiences of diverse sorts and my academic and scientific interests there's not a direct line between that childhood experience and the writing of of blueprint you know um, but as I wrote Blueprint, I, 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 I'm so sorry about that. I'm not going to turn the thing off altogether. Because, okay, we're going to have to shut this down if you don't get that under control. Yeah, hold on. I'm just kidding. I know. Just one second. I'm turning it off altogether. Um, uh, well, you know, so not, here's what I what I'm like. You, there's this there's this sentence where you said, "I felt fear." You're talking about, and let's set the scene: the military dictators are falling from power. It's very surprising. Um, your mother kind of takes you, although although authorities are telling people to stay inside, she takes you and and was it your brother? My younger brother, your yeah. Younger we're, brother like, out into the crowd, which which yes. which even you, it sounds like even at the time you knew that that didn't feel like I, normal maternal behavior. No, I I, I never liked crowds, mm-hmm. uh, even as a young person, but my mother always said she felt safer in large crowds, which is interesting. Hmm. And yes, just as you describe the um the dictatorship is falling. It's the summer of 74, so I'm 12. My brother Dimitri is 10. And my mother, who really was devoted to our education, we were by then growing up in Washington, D.C., and she used to take us to civil rights marches, and you know she was politically very progressive. And of course, they were delighted that this right-wing junta was falling in Athens, and the junta had sent uh, men out into the streets armed men in 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 uh, in, in uh, trucks and tanks that went through the streets of Athens and said you know people of Athens this doesn't concern you stay inside and my mother was going to have none of this and uh, her father's house was quite close to the constitution square in the center of Athens and from the balcony you could see the crowds massing and so quite late in the evening i would say around 9 or 10 p.m. My mother decides to go out into these crowds and take her two young sons with her yeah. in part to, sh- to show us. You know, mm-hmm. she was committed to our pedagogy to, to make us be a part of this historic uh, event in a way not dissimilar from the much safer thing I did with my own children when, when uh, Barack Obama was running for the first election. You know, we took our children with us to the polls, uh, you know, because um, it was a historic event. It, right. it wasn't relevant for the children to uh, – they were going to vote or participate in any way. Yeah. Anyway, so she takes us out and the, the streets are packed with people. And later that evening, the exiled prime minister, Konstantinos Karamalis, was going to return to Athens by jet from France. And uh, we make it to a bach or so from, um, from Syndicum Square, the Constitution Square, and uh, crowds are packed. People are yelling and screaming. They're sweaty. It's smelly. And my mother boosts us up onto this uh, big stone 
wall that had this metal fence uh, mounted on top of it, which was the national park or the national zoo on the other side. And my brother and I are standing up there on this little bit of ledge and looking down at my mother. And I'm, I remember being mystified why my why everyone seemed so angry and mm. excited and mm. and disturbed if this was supposed to be such a happy event. And they were yelling, you know, "Exoy Americani," which means "Out with the Americans," and and uh, which is a sort of denunciation of the torture, the the the, the uh, prison that was used for torture uh, dissidents, and and um, and and I remember initially being worried that the crowd would shift and we would lose our mother. You know that was yeah. my concern. And then um, at some point, um, when they were yelling, you know, out with the Americans, my mother very unexpectedly. And my brother, I checked the story with my brother. My, my mother died a long time ago when she, when she was 47 and yeah. I was 25. So I, I couldn't check with her. But I did check with my brother and she, she looks up at us and points at me and Dimitri and she goes, Nai Americani, there are the Americans, right. you know, at her little children. And, um, you know, uh, what possibly could have possessed her? you know, to do this, uh, to, to highlight our differences in the midst of this, this, you know, volatile crowd yelling out with the Americans. Right. And I mean, so far you, you wrote, I felt fear because I could see in my mother's eyes that she was being swept away by a powerful force. And it, it feels to me like that, that boundary between the individual and society and the incredible interconnectedness of those two things is that through line for me. Not, not necessarily yes. of what of the book you wrote, but of your passions, your fascinations. Yes, yes. This tension between the individual and the collective absolutely is something that has occupied my thinking for a long time. And, um, I, you know, absolutely. And I, I, I write in the book about how and, – and, and I'm – I'm 90 percent sure this is true, but I, I can't remember for sure. But as I said, as you said, I, I grew up on a healthy dote of Greek uh, diet of Greek uh, mythology, and I knew I, I had been taught the story of me, you know Media, who um, you know was abandoned by Jason and chopped up their children and threw them overboard as, because she was so angry. <laughs> right. And uh, I'm sure I'm sure that's what I thought of in that moment when my mother pointed up that at her beloved children. That was a story you suddenly entered yeah. with your mother? Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. Like, oh, my God, what is this woman doing? Yeah. Um, but um, but I, I interpreted this knowing my mother's commitments and knowing the kind of extraordinary human being she was. Um, I think what she was trying to do was – you know, almost pathetically or futilely calm the ardor of the crowd by pointing out to those around her that, you know, not all Americans are awful. You know, some are just young boys like her beloved children and rather innocent. So that's how I interpret the event. So as you know, as you well know, we're speaking at a moment in which I think many Americans and and people in many uh, countries around the globe would say tribalism suddenly feels more possible and more prevalent. Mm. And one of the, one of the, you know, a, a kind of thrust of your scholarship and and your, and and what you write about is that um, that that same uh, capacity that that is in human nature that is in our in human experience to to surrender our individuality and feel so aligned with it, a collective in a way that um, 
that can surprise us and might even go against our self-interest and, 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 and turn us against others, that within that very, the other side of that same capacity is this blueprint, as you say, that um, our ability to be charitable, mm. um, that we each carry within us an evolutionary blueprint for making a good society. And, um, and this is not a message that science or the academy or, as I'm very focused on, journalism, um, has been presenting uh, in modernity. So, yeah, I just really want to... Yeah, I mean, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think. First of all, I would emphasize that what I'm interested in is not so much the qualities that make a human being as an individual good, although this intersects. That topic intersects with my topic. I'm interested in the qualities that make a collective good. Right. How how is it that a group of humans come together to form a good society? And, to, and, and in what way and to what extent has evolution equipped us with these capacities? And just to illustrate very quickly for people, I mean, I'm talking, for example, about, a, about our capacity for love and friendship yeah. and, and we're cooperation. Gonna, wanna, we're going to go into all those things. Yeah. yeah. And, and teaching, all of which are quite unusual in the animal kingdom. Um, and yet we, we humans do this. Certain other animals also do this. We'll discuss this. But the point is that for too long, in my view, as you've already mentioned, scientists and you know citizens on the street have have focused on the dark side of human nature, on our mm-hmm. propensity for for uh, selfishness and tribalism and 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 mendacity and cruelty and violence, yeah. as if this were a natural or normal or pre- or or primary state of affairs, and yet. I think the bright side has been denied the attention it deserves because equally we are capable of love and friendship and and teaching and cooperation and all these other other wonderful things. And in fact, I would argue that it's those qualities are are uh, more powerful uh, than the than the bad qualities, and therefore, in some ways, much more important. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if 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 every time I came near you, you you know were mean to me or you filled me with fake news, you know you you told me falsehoods about the environment in a way that was detrimental to my capacity to survive in the environment, or you killed me, yeah, I would be better off living apart from you. But we don't do that. We live together. And so therefore, the benefits of a connected life must have outweighed the costs. And they did outweigh the costs. And the question is, how did that state of affairs come? come to be. And, and so I, I try to show the origins of these good qualities and their role in our collective experience. And they're very ancient, very distinctive, but we're not the only animals that do these things either, right, which right. is also informative. It, I think it's also an important distinction that you are, you're working on long time scales. You're talking about evolutionary yes. forces. You're not talking about historical moments or historical the arc, even the arc of history. Um, yes. You're talking about the arc of evolution. Um, yes. And in fact, you argue, and I think that's really important because we don't. That's it's an unusual way to think. You know, something I'm very, inter- yes. very, you know, watching now is this fixation about um, how important any Tuesday in November might be. You know, mm-hmm. um, and um, yes, a long time ago we decided that's when we have elections on Tuesdays in November. But mm-hmm. but if if all of our imagining about what's possible socially, wherever you are in the political spectrum, is loaded into that, it's a failure for demoralization and 
and and and a very dark view of mm-hmm. um, of what we're capable of societally. But you're you're doing you're making quite a different move with this. What you're looking at something different. Yeah, I mean, I think I think cultural and historical forces are extremely important, and they're very powerful. But I'm interested in forces that have been operating for much longer periods of time. And that, in, in, I would argue, are more powerful and more fundamental. And in fact, every argument that I make in the book, I could make about human beings uh, who were alive 10,000 years ago before the action of a lot of the technological and historical forces that we take as so relevant and ascendant today. Right. So we were capable of love and friendship and living together 10,000 years ago. And we were also capable of violence, of course, then too. But all of these things were a part of our nature um, well before we then had this overlay of cultural and technological and historical forces acting. And in some ways, I would argue that those forces are a thin veneer overlaid uh, on a much uh, more fundamental edifice. And one of the metaphors that I use in the book is that in some ways, we're deluded into thinking that these cultural forces and cultural differences are so big and so important and it's like standing on a on a uh, at, you know on a ten thousand foot plateau and noticing that one hill is three hundred feet and one hill is nine hundred feet and becoming obsessed at what is it that explains the difference between these two hills, one of which is three times bigger than the other. But if you step off the plateau and go at some distance, you see that actually those are two mountains, one of which is ten thousand three hundred feet and the other of which is ten thousand nine hundred feet, hmm. and actually. The forces you were previously focused on, sort of of local erosion or human action that made one hill 300 feet or 900 feet, actually are trivial in comparison to the plate tectonic and volcanic forces that cause these huge mountains. And and it's those it's those kinds of super powerful forces acting below the surface that uh, interest me, especially since. To my eye, those forces are primarily forces for good, and I think right. I think they've been neglected. Right. So so let's um, let's kind of walk through some of the aspects. You <clears throat> what you describe as a a social suite, a suite of capacities, which you're you're really saying that these things are like genetic coding for the stru- structure and function of our societal life, right? Like yes. they're not they're, they're like breathing. They're automatic, not socially yes. engineered. Um, and and you in fact um, have and I feel like I'm I'm almost hesitant to mention this because it's so interesting and I feel like we could spend the whole hour on it. But you you did all this work, uh, you've done all this research into um, ways in which we have social engineering has been tried, um, in, mm. including by you know by way of disaster in both utopian mm. intentional communities or what happens when people are shipwrecked on a deserted island or in Antarctica mm-hmm. um, or kibbutz. Um, mm-hmm. And and one thing that you've said you know is that the social engineering actually never cannot cannot escape. These mm-hmm. this social suite. You know, there's a striking sentence. Uh, there is no society on earth that has an easy job of suppressing our innate tendencies to love, friendship, and cooperation. It's not quite that simple. There are also ways in which social engineering tried to do something that sounded utopian, and that doesn't work either. If it if it goes mm-hmm. against um, this way, mm-hmm. where we are made, it's really what you're mm-hmm. saying. Built. Yeah, I mean that's exactly right. I mean. Um, 
I open I open uh, the book with um, the the kind of fantasy experiment that a mad scientist would want to do, which is that if you're trying to understand what kind of society comes naturally to us, what you would really like to do is take a group of babies that had never been taught anything and throw them together on some isolated island and somehow miraculously arrange for them to be fed and raised and then come back you know, 30 years later and see what kind of social order did they make for themselves. And obviously, we can't do such an experiment. It would be cruel and unethical. But it hasn't stopped very powerful monarchs from thinking about such an experiment. We have records of this all the way back to Herodotus. It's, it's been called the forbidden experiment. Mm. And it's been attempted in, in some occasions in certain ways. For example, typically these monarchs have been interested in what kind of language comes naturally to us. So they have contrived to have a couple of babies given to a, a mute shepherd up in the mountains to raise the babies and, uh, and then come back and see what language do they speak. So one of these uh, was, uh, was a king. I think I can't remember what his first name was at the moment, but he was a king in – in, uh, in, the 14th, in the 15th century in Scotland and he was um, interested in what was the language of Adam and Eve. And so he allegedly did this experiment and uh, when, the, when they came back, they found that the, the babies spoke passable Hebrew. Uh, and so it was concluded, concluded that, that that was the language of Adam and Eve. Anyway, so can't do this experiment. Uh, so what are proxies for this experiment? And I opened the book with many possible approximations. These include, as you said, shipwrecks, intentional utopian communities, uh, whether kibbutzes or communes in the 60s in the United States or in, ever since Roman times, there have been groups of people who have said, you know, society's all screwed up. Let's, let's go out and make society anew. We have records going way back. I, I look at the scientific outposts in Antarctica. I look in my own laboratory. We've done experiments with we have some software that allows us to create temporary artificial societies of real people. Mm-hmm. And we've done experiments with over 30,000 people who have come to our lab online and temporarily participated in our experiments to try to see could we engineer, you know, what kind of social order is conducive to cooperation in human beings and so forth. Anyway, the bottom line of all of this is that there's really only one way to be social. And there are certain archetypical structures and ways of organizing society that we we basically are innately programmed to manifest and that we can no more wake up and make a society inconsistent with those impulses than uh, than ants can wake up and make beehives. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we this is how we live socially. It's been shaped by natural selection and we are endowed with these capacities and it takes a very powerful force to stop it. And these capacities include, for instance, the fact that we love the people we're having sex with. We form sentimental attachments to them. We are uh, technically monogamous. Uh, we we uh, befriend each other. We form long-term non-reproductive unions with other members of our species. This is exceedingly rare in the animal kingdom. We do it. Certain other primates do it. Uh, elephants do it. Certain cetacean species do it. We form friendships with unrelated people. It's universal in human groups. We, um, we cooperate with each other altruistically. We're kind to strangers, uh, again, to unrelated individuals. This is different than many other types of cooperation, which are also seen in other animal species, but often in that cooperation is between genetically related individuals. Mm-hmm. We do it with genetically unrelated individuals. We... We teach each other things. People take this for granted, but it's actually yeah. unbelievable. I love, I love this. I love this, that this is in the social suite, teaching and social learning. 
Yeah. So we so, don't think about that as a beautiful thing we do and that we all participate in all of yes. our lives. Right. Yes. Yes. And it's a kind of altruism. It's a kind of gift when you teach someone something. And 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 and, and if you if you think about it, like uh, basically every animal can learn. You know, a little fish can learn that if it swims up to the light, it'll find food there. Uh, that's independent learning. Um, and some animals learn socially, and this is extremely efficient. So, so you put your hand in the fire, and you learn that it burns. So you've acquired some knowledge at some price. Or I can watch you put your hand in the fire, and I get almost as much knowledge for none of the price, which is really super efficient. You know, or or I observe right. you eat red berries and you die. Right, right. And and so now I've learned something at no cost. It's amazing. Right. But right? we don't do that. Well, but we learn socially. We do. Yeah. We, yeah, we don't. I mean, yeah. But we do something even more than that. We copy each other. We imitate each other. We learn from each other, which is rare in the animal kingdom, although it happens. We teach each other things. We set out to teach you how to build a fire. And this is exceedingly rare, but it's universal in us. And so these are some very positive, amazing qualities that are 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 shaped by natural selection, are encoded in our genes, and are universal in humans, and that are good, and and that serve to countermand some of our our you know vile propensities, which alas we also have. So so that's sort of that is part of the argument in 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 the book. You know, I I um you're so right. It's it's like these things are so obvious and taken for granted. Um, but it, it, it harms us that we don't take them as seriously yes. as we do uh, what is dark and evil and destructive. Um, yes. You know, and I think I was thinking as I was reading you, I was thinking, you know, there's this phrase, the better angels of our nature, mm-hmm. right, from Lincoln. And like mm-hmm. that is a phrase that you can throw into any conversation, any speech. And we all know Right, we know what that means. We mm-hmm. we understand that, mm-hmm. but but we don't actively. Certainly, when we think about our life, our shared life, our societal life, our political life, we kind of treat that like a, you know, a sidebar for special occasions, and not as something. Yeah, like a, right, <laughs> like a nice to have instead of must have. Yeah. Uh, well. First of all, I mean, that's a magnificent phrase, and it's also, as you know, the title of my colleague Steve Pinker's fantastic book. Um, and I think Stephen argues correctly, in my view, that beginning around 300 years ago, uh, with the technological advances of the Enlightenment and the philosophical moves in the Enlightenment, you know, committed to the equality of hum- all human beings, uh, sort of democratic governance and other ideas, which, to be fair, were unequally applied, right? Yes. But, but nevertheless, they started uh, – at a particular historical moment in Europe and spread uh, around the world and spread around the world from there. You know, so for example, the abolition of slavery. Slavery had been practiced since time immemorial everywhere. But, you know, it begins with abolitionists in England and spreads and eventually, uh, finally in the 1970s, you have the last uh, state in the world outlaw, you know, chattel slavery. Anyway, the uh, so so there was no doubt that these technological advances and these these philosophical moves have contributed to an extraordinary improvement in human well being. You know, we're safer, we live longer, uh, we have greater freedom. Uh, it's unbelievable what's happened in the last three hundred years. But my argument is that you don't need to just look at 
what I would regard as relatively recent historical and cultural forces to get an account of a good life. Deeper, more powerful, more ancient forces are at work propelling a good society, endowing us with these wonderful capacities, which were always there, are still there, are unavoidable. And in that, if anything, these, these moves that we've made as a species in the last few hundred years are, again, as I said, this sort of thin veneer yeah. over this more fundamental reality. Well, and— Of the better angels of our nature. Right. And also, as you, as you acknowledge, and I think it's important to, to under, underscore that, you know, and that we, right? I mean, I'm learning. I'm learning to use that word we more carefully because that mm-hmm. we was incomplete and uneven, right, of mm-hmm. who, was, who was receiving all that benefit. Um, yeah, I think you mean during the historical, but I would yeah. say that one of the advantages of my argument is that we— Everyone got the benefit. I, it was all of us. It was our human species. Well, you know? we're all no. What I I also like your argument because I think it let it says this is for all of this is absolutely mm-hmm. in all of us, yes. and and that and that while this historical moment brought it to some people and not to others, that this no is, brought certain no brought certain other things. Love was present everywhere and at all times. Okay, and that's an important point too. Yeah. yeah, we didn't need the enlightenment to we allow us to We didn't need the enlightenment be... to love or be friends. Okay, but yeah, Correct. and I think that's this... my point. Yes, 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 and I and, and that... I and I think for a moment like this, where there is, uh, I mean, as I see it, a a real imperative, a calling for us to step more robustly into these capacities. Mm. Um, um, I went so I so what I would like to do is is kind of go kind of dwell on some of these aspects so that you just named and get mm. get into some of the nuance of them, which mm. is really thought-provoking and I think uh, potentially behavior-provoking. <laughs> mm. Mm. Um, I like, um, okay, so, so love, mm. um, which is one of the most watered-down and overused words in the English language. Mm. Um, and yet, you know, as you point out, it... Um, I think it's so interesting to me about your research is that, um, yeah, as you said, we don't just have sex, we form loving attachment. Um, mm-hmm. And that this is true in all kinds of societies and sexual preferences. It's also mm-hmm. true in, you know, in places that are not, where monogamy is not the rule. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's it. But just, just I, I think you kind of naming that. Like, like, let's mm. let's let's take this in that this is this is what it means to be human to love. Yes, I think it's a key aspect of our capacities. We've been endowed with this capacity again to form sentimental attachment to people we're having sex with, whether it's monogamous, polygynous, polyandrous, whether it's straight or gay. Uh, you know, we you could have you you know we could mate with each other, and, and many animals do that, but we don't just do that and. There is an evolutionary account for why we feel this attachment. There is um, – which has to do with the the ways in which this – the evolution of this capacity for love enhances the survival of our offspring. So if you form an attachment to the person you reproduce with, then you – both parties stick around to invest in the – in the, these new babies that are born and that babies that have parents that love each other fare baby – fare better – I'm speaking now in evolutionary terms – fare better than babies that have parents that do not love each other, by which I mean don't stick around to be together. And as a result, we evolve this, this sentimental attachment. Now, it's likely and, and it's not – these are – this is still a very active area of research. This is not fully worked out. So some of what I 
and I discuss some of the limitations and provisos and constraints and limit you know in the book. But uh, just to give a kind of feel for uh, some of these ideas, it's felt that the evolution of this sensibility in men and women is slightly different, and that. Um, in, and there, just to back up for a moment, there's there's an idea in evolutionary biology that are, that is known as a pre-adaptation or an exaptation. That's when evolution equips an organism with a, a feature that originally is evolves to serve one purpose, and then suddenly, once it is there, can be used for a different purpose. Hmm. And one of the most famous examples of this is uh, feathers, the evolution of feathers, which it is felt originally involved in dinosaurs as a kind of insulation. But uh, once those feathers evolved, they were actually quite useful for the evolution of flight. Hmm. So feathers originally evolved for, for one reason, and then they get used for a different purpose. So and they are – this is called a pre-adaptation or an exaptation. And you think love is, is love a similar thing? No, I think – well, I think there were – love has – yes, I think that love is love is to – It had this purpose. To, well, is to flight. Love is yeah. the flight part. Right, so what yeah. were the feathers? Yeah, what were the feathers? Well, the feathers uh-huh. were – so we originally had this uh, – in women, it is felt, uh, women evolved uh, attachment to their uh, babies. Yeah. And that especially given the way we give birth to immature young in our species. long, long childhood. Yes. Yeah. That, that, uh, that women evolved the capacity first of feeling the sentimental attachment to their offspring. Yeah. So the first thing to evolve in women was love of babies and that eventually this served as a pre-adaptation to love of spouse, of, of mates, of the, of the men right. who had impregnated them. So in right. other words, so many men who, who feel like when their partners look at them, you know, she's looking at them as if they were a baby. It, you know, it may be true. Uh, <laughs> I mean, so, yeah. And, you know, I, there's a there's a there's an anecdote you tell, or a, a, tr- a true thing, uh-huh. um, in about to, to your point that this. Um, well, so it's it's a, it's a story about the Hadza, the ancient people yes. of Tanzania, and the who are hunter gatherers, kind of the original uh, still existing hunter gatherers. Mm-hmm. You, you list what they say, what they say when they're asked what they want in a mate, and mm-hmm. it sounds exactly like a contemporary internet dating profile. Yes, sexy, hard worker, only wants you, understanding and gentle, doesn't use use bad words, cares for kids. That we're, yes. so, that, that, that we're so similar in that this yes, thing. Yes, isn't that amazing? That nothing has changed in tens yes. of thousands of years. It's very moving. And uh-huh. you look at, at, at mate preferences and now there's range of mate preferences. And also I need to stress we're talking about the general capacity of individuals. So there is variation in all human traits, in height, in mathematical ability, in the kinds of partners we want to have sex with. All of this is there's tremendous variation. And this is discussed at length in the book. And I want to emphasize this point as well. What we're talking about now is the kind of general tendency Mm -hmm. or the evolved capacities of human beings. And we're also, another idea that's important to emphasize is often we are interested in what can any human do even if not all humans can do it. So, for example, some humans, the human mind is capable of being an Einstein, but not everyone can be an Einstein. But nevertheless, something about the brain <laughs> makes it capable of those types of inferences. Mm-hmm. So 
Anyway, so on the on the women's side, that's the acceptation. The pre-adaptation was the attachment to offspring, which was then, it is theorized, evolved to be extended to their partners. Now, alas, the story on the male side of the equation is a little bit, um, you know, it's it uh, you know has to be delicately expressed. But the gist of it is that it is felt that that male members of our species originally evolved to be attached to territory. And so they they became so this is my area where I live and I'll fight any other men that or males that come into my territory and that it was this was the pre-adaptation to be attached to females. So so uh, so so the the male side uh, views women as um, you know as property. Now I again I I don't actually think that women are property. I don't think that men should and do look at women that way. I'm speaking about what are some ideas about what came first? What came before men and women loved their mates, which was often heterosexual but not always heterosexual? And and it is theorized that some of the things that came before that were love of offspring or love of territory and that this – once you had this capacity for attachment to babies and terrain, we then extended that to be attached to our mates. Now, I should say – other animals have independently evolved this capacity. So what's amazing is, is that, for example, 96% of bird species are socially monogamous. Mm-hmm. They too have evolved this attachment to the animal with which they are reproducing and that it confers similar advantages in those species. And so evolution, this is a kind of time-tested solution to a problem, which is how do you raise vulnerable young in a dangerous environment? And one way is to is to keep the both parents around, both both genetic uh, parents around. Um, so, so um, anyway, so that's yeah. some thoughts on on the evolution of love, which is again universally expressed in our species which, and in the which book. Which is, is not that 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 background is not at all romantic. <laughs> yes, it's yeah. not romantic, no, but I'm a romantic not. at heart. I'm, I know you are. <laughs> I know. I'm so a, yeah. I'm so committed to the yeah. possibility of romance in life, but. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and I tell some stories in the book, very poignant stories of of couples that run away to be in love yeah. in every society, and um, even in a society, I, I, there's one potential exception. So most societies are organized around this sensibility of love rather than around lust, which is interesting. Yeah. Even in societies that have arranged marriages, this is often misunderstood. So so societies that have arranged marriages and think you know, partner choice should not be based on youthful, lustful feelings. That's better to let the adults pick the partners for the young ones. Even in those societies, those societies are very, like in India, are very committed to love. While love before marriage is seen as dangerous and potentially unsound for the choice of a mate, love after entry into marriage is seen as very much desired, normal, and wonderful. Yeah, it's a love that grows with marriage. I'll say now that I have adult, young adult children, I I, I increasingly see the wisdom of of arranged marriages by parents. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Or, yes, exactly. I I get it. I get it. It's it's true. Um, You know, I'm... But... No, I was just going to say one more thing, which is the one society that I talk about, the Na people of the Himalayas who who organize themselves around sex and not love. And and this is a whole society, a matrilineal society that even Marco Polo describes as incredibly promiscuous from his perspective, 
where it's very typical for every woman in any village to have had sex with every man of her generation. Um, it's a very well-functioning, organized social system. Uh, people are not supposed to form attachments. But even in this society where you can have sex with anyone you want, at least if you're a woman, um, the men sometimes you know, don't have as many opportunities. The, uh, the, um, even in this society, there are young couples that run away to f- do what is for them forbidden, which is to be in love yeah. and to forsake all others, you know, just to be with each other. So, so it's a universal, this capacity for love is my point. Yeah. Um, let's talk about friendship, uh, which, I don't know, you, there's this wonderful quote uh, from you, uh, that, of Ralph Waldo Emerson, um, a friend mm-hmm. may well be reckoned the masterpiece of nature. Mm. Um, and to me, I think especially as I grow older, friendship is one of the most meaningful, I, would, I think of it as a form of love in my life that mm-hmm. just grows more and differently important. Mm-hmm. Um, and this too, as you say, is... Well, here's your here's the scientific definition of friendship: long-term, non-reproductive unions with people who are not our kin, also not romantic, but not but very rare, uh, mm-hmm. very unusual about us as a species. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's very rare. As I said, there are very few species that form friendships, and um, and um, and we ourselves often have very few friends, which is also quite interesting. So you know, I think. Most human beings, it's very sad. Some people have no friends, but um, we quantified this. I, I, try to remember, I, think, I think 8% of Americans are unable to identify a friend. I, the number is really? not exactly right, something like that. It's really sad. Um, but, but most people have a friend and most people have a best friend and they can identify that best friend. And people typically have two or three people that they would identify as their trusted friends in whose company they feel better. You feel good in the company of your friends. You you want good things to happen to your friends. You would pay a secret price to make a good thing happen to your friend. So if I asked you, you know, would you do X, you know, would you give me a hundred dollars and I will give a thousand dollars to your friend and your friend will never know that you had given me a hundred dollars and they'll just get this windfall, you would say, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'd feel good about it. And so so these so most people have a f- couple of people that uh, that are in this category, but not more. Mm-hmm. So, so it's and this special. is again, yes. And this is there is some variation on this too, which I discuss in the book. But this is also basically universal. Um, and there are a few societies where friendships are assigned uh, or inherited. Um, and there's there's some variation in this in certain ways. But but by and large, the great majority of societies have. Have friendships that are that are 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 quite similar to the kinds of notions we have of friendship in the United States. You make a connection between friendship and the foundations for morality. Yeah, I make a I make a connection between all the elements of the social suite and morality. Mm-hmm. So part of my argument is, and here I need to be careful to avoid, or I discuss in the book this whole notion of a naturalistic fallacy. Not not everything that's natural is good. Right. Uh, you know, right. my favorite example of this is maternal mortality. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's quite natural for women to die when delivering children. Yeah. But no one would say that is a good thing and we would quite vigorously try to stop that from happening. Yeah. S- but we 
but it is the, it is the case that many of these virtues that we have been discussing, love and friendship, for example, or cooperation or teaching, etc., are capacities that we have been shaped by evolution that are universally seen as good and that are, in my view, necessary for a good society uh, or a society in which we can live together. And, and here I'd borrow on moral philosopher Philippa Foote's ideas about um, you know, how we can reason about the origins of morality. So – and we can talk about that a little bit if you're, if you're interested. She has some magnificent examples. Well, you know what, what? What this brings to mind for me, I'm, I'm thinking a lot these days about, and and you know, in, in conversations around conflict transformation and uh, culture shift, social transformation, and um, you know, there's this there's this reality for people who work in how do societies really move beyond violence and beyond sectarianism and. Mm. And it does depend on relationship, right? Which mm-hmm. which is hard to scale. Um, but mm-hmm. but when you have when you have true culture shift, which which always has been decades in the making, um, there are these there are these cores of small groups, um, you know, of friendships that formed across difference, which didn't necessarily make people alike or make people agree, but created a different, opened a different possibility for how they could share life. Yeah, I that's right. And there have been many experiments of this that have shown the ways in which cultivating person-to-person relationships can make democracy stronger, can reduce sectarian violence. Uh, and there are wonderful efforts that are afoot. You know, for example, there are summer camps uh, for uh, kids that are on opposite sides of ethnic divides around the world that bring them together to do kid it kid things, you know, like play soccer. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and then that changes people's attitudes. But if I might go on a bit of a digression, I, I think I can illustrate some of these ideas and, and also at the same time illustrate not only their promise for helping us to address some of the sectarian divisions that you describe, but also some of the reasons that evolution endowed us with these capacities. Okay. So so let me um so let me cultivate in your mind's eye this notion. Imagine you have a uh, a, uh, uh, a, um, so first of all, I, I need to back up actually and say one other piece of information, which is that one of the paradoxical elements of the social suite is the capacity for individual identity. That is to say that we are all unique. And this might seem quite odd. How, how could our uniqueness be essential to our socialness? But it is. And, and, the, and, and, and the reason is as follows, that we, we use our faces to communicate our unique identity. So, so every one of us has a different looking face. Hmm. Why? Why is that? Why don't we all have a same face? Uh, it's an evolutionary luxury that we are able to each have a different face. Every kidney to do its job in principle should function in the same way. But every face to do its job should in principle look different. Hmm. Uh, they should all be different from another. And not only that, not only do we all have different faces, but you can look at it as a sea of faces and you have the brain power to distinguish one person from another, which is also an evolutionary luxury. So right. we have evolved this capacity to signal and detect our uniqueness. And this is essential for social living because if you don't want someone to fail to feed you when you're an infant and feed some other child or forget that they had sex with you right. or, or, uh, or not remember that you were mean to them and they should avoid you, right. you need some way of signaling this is me, you know, not some other jerk. Mm. Um, so, so we have evolved this capacity for uniqueness to, which we communicate with our faces and people can detect our 
specific identities, other yeah. other members. I do. Of I do like that. I had I had written that line for me writing the deep irony that in order to be social, we have to first be individual. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And again, interestingly, other social creatures also do this. And if, if just as a quick aside, you can see that this is required for friendship. You have to, in order to sustain friendships, you have to be able to distinguish one right. conspecific from another. Right. I have to tell the difference right. between you and some other, you know, middle-aged woman that looks superficially like you. No, this is a different yeah. person. Yeah. And I'm a friend with you, not that other person, yeah. you know. Okay. So, all right. So, so with that additional background, let me go back to the question you put to me about sectarianism. So let's imagine you have a population of 1,000 people and, um, and you go to these people and you say to them, you need to uh, cooperate with each other. Every one of you needs to cooperate with everyone else in this group. Now, that's actually quite a difficult challenge. You know, I can't be nice to all these people. Uh, there are too many of them. Uh, how can I be sure if I'm nice to any one of them? I'll ever encounter another one of them again. There'll be wasted kindness. I'll never have a chance for anyone to reciprocate the kindness. Uh, I can't track who I've been kind to. There are too many for me to track. And so in this type of a situation, cooperation does not evolve. We, we miss the chance to evolve this wonderful quality, which is to work together to achieve things because there are a thousand of us and the challenge is too difficult for, for each person to cooperate with so many other people. So evolution has evolved a couple of solutions to this conundrum. One solution, which we haven't talked much about, is something known as in-group bias, yeah. which is the tendency of people to prefer to be nice to people they resemble by whatever superficial means. So, for example, let's say you go to this group of 1,000 people now and you give them different flags. You know, some get a purple flag and some get a green flag and some get a blue flag and you divide up these 1,000 people into um, 10 groups of 100. And now you tell each person, you know what? You don't have to cooperate with all 1,000. Just cooperate with people carrying your color flag. And, uh, and now everyone says, hey, that's much easier. You know, each of us will just cooperate with people carrying a purple flag if you're a purple flag carer and otherwise. And as a result of that, from a high-level view, what you find is that once you've done this and what you've done is known as adding structure to the population, you have, you have made this unstructured population structured, divided into 10 groups of 100. Having done that, having equipped human beings with a willingness – to respond to this and, and equip them with the capacity to draw distinctions, in other words, endowed them with a cognitive ability to tell the difference between us and them, when you evolve those capacities, suddenly cooperation becomes possible. So one argument is that the reason for tribalism is to make cooperation possible. To make the scale more manageable. Exactly, mm -hmm. by lowering the sense of scale. So that's one solution to this challenge. But evolution has given us other solutions. So another solution evolution has given us is the capacity for friendship. Hmm. Now you go to this group of a thousand and you say, okay, you know, each of you is going to have four or five or six friends. You're all going to have different friends, but all of you will be connected to somebody and eventually to everyone else in this group of a thousand via, you know, friend of friend of friend linkages. And now I just tell each of you, just be nice to your friends. There are three or four or five people. Just be nice to them. And now, again, it's so much easier. So everyone is just nice to their friends. But as a result, among the 1,000 people, you get a lot more cooperation than would have appeared. So once again, you've added structure to the population. You've organized them into a network. 
And I, my, I spend the last 20 years studying networks and the mathematics yeah. of networks and the, we could, you know, anyway. And, and adding networks structure of a particular kind allows them to work together again. Incidentally, elephants, with whom we share a last common ancestor 85 million years ago, they also have evolved social networks. And amazingly, the structure of their networks is just like ours independently evolved the same solution to this problem of working together and cooperating. So that's another a way of doing it. Okay, so now with those background, all that background information, let's go to the sectarian problem. Imagine you go to the United States today and you find a lot of sectarianism, a lot of tribalism. People are you know, only interested in, in, uh, in, in the working with their own groups and interested in demonizing other groups which is really depressing, uh, you know, like one of the more depressing realities that I've had to confront is, you know, why, why do we have to hate other groups? Why, why can't we just love our own group right, right. and, you know, be indifferent to other groups at least? You know, why do we have to hate them? Anyway, and, let's say and there's of course, a lot of— You know, I just do want to say that part of what you also point out when you're kind of pointing out the obvious that we ignore is that mm. in-group affiliation doesn't necessarily mean that you hate that you have hostility yes, to outsiders, that's right. right? But but that's but right. when but this is a phenomenon right now. This is very much above the radar, and so that that equation is kind of falsely being drawn. Yes, that's right. And of course, venal leaders have you know have taken advantage of our you know it's kind of the way like like uh, you know people people whether they are selling soap operas or pornography might take advantage of our interest in loving each other. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have this natural tendency to tribalism. And again, you know, leaders since time immemorial have been exploiting this very human tendency to right. get whip up, whip up hatred of other groups. Right. It's very natural to us that we're this way. But anyway, yeah. so, okay, so imagine now you have a lot of sectarianism in the United States and say, how are we going to deal with it? Well, one way to deal with it is to go up a level and to say, actually, we're all American. And to take advantage of our groupiness and our capacity to draw distinctions and to redefine what counts as us. So now instead of like all the divisions within our society, you go up a level. And this, this has been appreciated since time immemorial, uh, since, you know, since our founding. Not time immemorial, since our founding. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, de Tocqueville writes about this. The founding fathers write about this. You know, a pluribus unum, you know, we're going to, you know, from many come one, et cetera. Uh, it's a kind of foundational principle of the organization of our society. Fine. But evolution has given us other ways of coping with sectarian divisions, one of which we already just mentioned, which is friendship, forming sort of identifying individuals. And that relates to our capacity to go down a level to the level of individuals, to start seeing each person as a unique human being, not – as a kind of member of a group right. and therefore – and this is also part of our tradition and is best instantiated by Martin Luther King's famous you know, admonition or, or aspiration, which is that he looked forward to the time when his children would be judged not by the – by the would be judged right. by the content of their character right. rather than the, the color, color of their skin. skin. And, you exactly. Know, yeah, and so I, I'm sure you're, you're aware of this because when you – when you when you speak about the science of this, the evolutionary purpose and function, it sounds clinical when, in fact, all of this is very personal, right? At the same time, mm. right? At the same time that it seems mm -hmm. to be genetically encoded and mm -hmm. and a and a result of 
evolutionary forces over you know longer mm-hmm. historical time than we can than we can comprehend. I mean, for example, you know, going back to your story, you I found it so moving uh, here reading about you. You know, your your mother did die when when she was young. Mm-hmm. She was diagnosed when you were even younger. Um, mm-hmm. I was six. With Hodgkin's disease. And mm-hmm. uh, you ended up working in ho- becoming a doctor initially and working in hospice. And you yes, said all that- my mother's all my mother's sons became doctors, but that I'm the only so, one that became. That's so interesting. <laughs> yes. Three sons yeah. who then go to medical school. And- yes, but I'm the only one that became a hospice doctor. Okay. That's correct. <laughs> Um, but that you you've written that it was your work in hospice with people who were dying that deepened your fascination with universal human inclinations and qualities, yes. right? And so yeah, because yeah, death yeah. is another thing that unites us all, isn't it? Yes, and, and uh, yet and each death is un, you know yes. in profa- intensely personal, and yet yes. what I mean, what was it that you that you saw there that that. Of course, death well, is universal, but it seems like you also experience a universality to the experience of death. Yes. I mean, I think um, I took care of, you know, thousands of people when they were dying. I was probably been present at many hundreds of deaths at the moment of death. And, um, you know, I spent a lot of time as a hospice doctor. I stopped seeing patients about 10 years ago for a lot of different reasons. But um, and, you know, I published some work on, on uh, end-of-life care and hospice care and uh, spent a lot of time studying the widowhood effect, which is actually how I got interested in networks, and then that led to other Which is the propensity of spouses to die soon after their yes. partner's deaths, which you've also said is the phenomenon of what we call dying of a broken heart. Yes, like which is also amazing, heart. right? Social yeah. relationships are so important to us that yeah. when they're withdrawn, we die. Um, they're crucial to our survival, in fact, uh, as individuals and as a species. So, so the point though was that in, as a hospice doctor, you know, I, I, you know, eventually made the observation that countless other people have made. It's not special to me, which is the universality of human desires uh, as they approach the end of their lives. And most people, great vast majority, want very similar things. They, they want to be free of pain. They want to be with their loved ones. They want to make amends if that needs to happen. They, they um, want to die at home if they can. You know, they have very basic, fundamental. They have want to tell their story and have people who listen. Um, they uh, often have quite a rekindling of religious and spiritual beliefs, which are you know very very common. Um, and you can't, in my view, spend a, as much time as, as I did or as one might with people who are dying and not come away uh, with, a, with a number of uh, recognitions. Um, our mortality and our frailty is, um, you know, we're all soft on the outside, is, is so apparent when you take care of people who are dying. Mm. And, mm. Um, you know, and, and in some ways, the, the beauty of our species, you know, the, the things that, that we have been endowed to be able to do and that you see people who are dying struggling to let go, you know, the, the, um, the, and I saw this when my mother was dying, you know, when I was 25, I was in medical school and I, and she was talking about her own mortality to me in an extraordinarily wise way. And my mother died in a very, you know, I took care of, as I said, thousands of people and encountered very few who had quite the kind of death that my mother did. But she was fearless in the face of death, which was unbelievable to me. And um, and 
and, and able to narrate her own death to, to her children. And she spoke about how over the final years, then months, then weeks, then days, then, then ultimately hours of her death, how she would let things go. You know, you had to let go of your aspirations to see the future and you had to let go of your hope to see grandchildren and you had to let go of, of your body, you know, your bodily integrity. You, you can't control your, 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 uh, your body anymore. You can't move your extremities or, or even control your bodily functions and so forth. And you let go, you let go, you let go. And what's the last thing that people let go? Their loved ones, you know, they mm. let go. The last and hardest thing for most people to let go is their mm. connection to other people. And honestly, I, you know, I, it's extremely rare that in my experience as a hospice doctor that people let go of their love before they let go of something else. It was the last thing that people let go of. Yeah. So this, of course, this experience as a physician also informed my scientific interest, as you're, as you're noting. Well, it seems to me also that it just informs what you're looking for, right? It informs the questions you're asking for. It informs the things you're choosing to see, um, because a lot of what you're writing about are fundamental realities that we don't see, that we, that we haven't kind mm. of structured our serious discourse, and quote-unquote. Mm. Um, mm. I mean— I mean, here's another example of this. When you were studying the widower effect, people, you started to see, you started to be intrigued by how we affect each other at a social distance, well beyond what happens mm-hmm. in part with partners, mm-hmm. not restricted to couples or pairs. Mm-hmm. And you started to talk, th- think then about social networks as living mm-hmm. things. And that was such interesting language to me because when we speak, when the language of social networks has come into mm. common vocabulary through, you know, Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. And that, and you're... And it doesn't but, seem like a living thing at all, Right, and but you're talking about, and to me, this is also like, this is, this is really, this is kind of transformative language to say, no, but look at this. Like, so yes, we may all be in using social media, but we are all inhabiting and building and cultivating social mm-hmm. networks, right? Mm-hmm. With our yeah, lives. Yeah, the kind of social networks I talk about and I'm interested in, of course, are the, not the recent online variety, but the kind of networks that we humans have been making for tens of thousands of years. Right. The face-to-face networks that we're all embedded in and that shape our lives. And, um, you know, a very simple, rapid example I can give someone is that, you know, you're right now, you have friends who have friends who have friends and so forth. You're in this web of social interactions and you can't really see what's happening among your friends, friends, friends or your friends, 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 for example. But right now, one of those people is infected with the flu and inexorably, inevitably, that pathogen is going to reach you and you'll be infected. (laughs) And so – and so your fate depends on what's happening in this network over which you have no vision and no control. So, so yes, so we are all embedded in these networks. We have evolved to make them. Um, and my interest in them, as you suggested, started with – because I was this hospice doctor at the time. I was at the University of Chicago and I've told this story before and it's, it happened almost exactly as I'm about to tell it, which is that I had gone – uh, on Saturdays, I used to do home visits to people on the south side of Chicago and I had gone to take care of this woman who was dying of dementia and she was being cared for actually by her daughter, not her husband. I don't know whether her – I can't remember anymore if her husband had died or or whether the daughter was a primary caregiver. And uh, and I um, 
and in those days, I, I had one of those old uh, Motorola Razor phones or something, or it was actually just before that. It was the, I had a bigger phone. I can't remember. Maybe it was a Nokia. Anyway, it was a big. It was, the razors were small, so it wasn't a razor. It was a big brick of a phone, and I. Um, I was driving home uh, from having done this home visit and I get a call from the daughter's husband's best friend and and what I you know and and I was suddenly realized that the widowhood effect wasn't limited to death and it wasn't limited to spouses so what happened is is this daughter is exhausted from caring for her mother right. and the husband of the daughter has become depressed because of his wife's, you know, exhaustion. And the friend of the husband is concerned. <laughs> so calls me, you know. Right. And, and look at this ripple effect, you know, from the woman who's dying to her daughter to the husband to the friend across these different kinds of social connections. And so I realized that the widowhood effect that I had been studying in the lab at the time was not, of course, restricted to husbands and wives and it wasn't even restricted to dyads. It, it, was, it, could, it could ripple outwards. And, and that's actually what kind of prompted my shift to begin to study, scientifically study, human social networks. Right. Actually. It made me think of um, uh, a story somebody told me in Australia. They were business people, and somebody had come to them, young, some young people mm. had come to them and said they had this proposition, and it was about co-working, you know, which is now a little bit more out there, but it was fairly mm-hmm. new. And they said, the way they described the experience of co-working is they said, it's like being on Facebook, but you're all in the room together. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like, uh, <laughs> right? So it's, you know, like, it's like, it's like what we used to do until yes, ten minutes yes, ago. When <laughs> yes, yes, no, it's like the Onion article. The Onion article. It's like like being a chocoholic, but for alcohol. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, Yes. So you're kind of pointing out that we've been in social networks for a long, long time. And that if yes. any of it, any of us stop to really think about that, to really take it apart, draw a diagram. Um, yes. It's, it's, but I, I think this is such important knowledge. I mean, it feels to me like, um, you know, to me, one of the great uh discoveries of our lifetime is uh, neuroplasticity mm. that that we have learned unlike what i learned when i was growing up in the mid 20th century that mm. you know your brain that we kind of basically stop forming our character and our brain kind of stops forming you are you are at some point not your character but your brain like well you, but you i think equip- like what kind of person you are right i, I feel like but now what we're really mm. learning is that is that uh, we have the we have the, that our brains keep forming across the lifespan and that we have we can have input into that, mm-hmm. even with our behavior, with our choices. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, it feels to me like what you're describing is kind of a corollary to that, that we also have agency to realign societally. And I feel like just the first step is being taking seeing, taking seriously uh, that it, we, we have this inborn capacity to rise to the better angels of our nature. Um, and so does everybody yeah, around us. Yeah, I mean, I think we are equipped with these capacities. Now, mm-hmm. we don't always enact them, of course, but right. we do have them. Um, and I think they're like readily available tools for us to to rely on to to make, you know, better, more good uh, societies. That's right. You know, I also it's important to note that, you know, there are many forces that can steer us away from that. Yeah. So, for example— you know, during the East, you know, during the, the during the period of power of the Stasi in East Germany, uh, they were able to cultivate so much suspicion that friendship became a serious 
hazard in East Germany, that you couldn't trust anybody. Your friends could be ratting out on you. I think I think after the fall of the Berlin Wall, it was discovered that like 50 percent approximately of the population of East Germany were reporting on their friends and yeah, neighbors and but, even family. Well, you know, I I have I, I lived in Berlin in the 80s and have my Stasi mm. file, so I could talk to you about that because it didn't it it affected friendship. It created boundaries that people that you made instinctively, but it didn't impede it didn't impede this basic impulse or even the pleasure and importance of it that you're describing. That's good to hear. Yeah. So even the Stasi were unable to suppress the, yeah, they were able friendship to capacity. Complicate it, but not 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 make it go away. Mm. Um you what know, was in your Stasi file, if I may? Well, ask. we'll have we'll have coffee next time I'm in New Haven, and I'll okay. tell you. Um, Please contact me. <laughs> okay. Bring the file. All right. Um, I found it fascinating. Uh, you told a story somewhere about. Um, it, it, so back when you you kind of we didn't even talk about this. We don't have, but you kind of came onto this burst onto the scene originally with your with your with your work on connectedness and friendship and um and the thing that got such attention was your study on how obesity is kind of contagious mm. but there was a there was an article uh, or so there was a lot of press about that and i found it interesting because you you were saying a lot that a lot of things are contagious right but but mm-hmm. that's the one that really grabbed attention and headlines and mm. you told a story somewhere about how the the european Emphasis mm-hmm. in reporting that was different, mm-hmm. whereas Americans said, "You're being influenced by your friends." You're, are your what is the New York Times headline was something like, "Are your friends making you fat?" Whereas yes. when the Europeans reported it was, "Are you making your friend? Are you ma- you making your friends fat?" Yes. Are your friends gaining weight? Perhaps you are to blame. <laughs> right. Which I just love the inversion between America. It was actually the Brits, not the Europeans. Okay. The British headlines were totally the opposite of the American headlines. Yeah. Which just to me speaks to this, to me, what is so uh, empowering about your research is that it does suggest agency. I mean, as you're saying, mm-hmm. there are many reasons that we aren't living to our best selves. But mm-hmm. but this, these are serious capacities, as serious as our capacity to be hateful or evil mm-hmm. or selfish. Yeah, I think you're you're kind of meandering towards the whole topic of free will, which is something that I yeah I struggle with. So I think there's an enormous literature now, from an empirical point of view, that explores not just from a philosophical point of view that explores the limits and meaning of free will. You have everything from uh, you know twin studies that show that you know damn near everything is is uh, partially genetic. Uh, I, I'm, I don't know if anyone's looked at whether your favorite color is partially genetic. I suspect there is some genetic yeah. component to that. I don't know the answer. But almost everything, you know, your religiosity, your political beliefs. So so if that's true, then you might have much less free will than you think. You think you can have any political beliefs, but actually that's not true. You know, some people are more likely to be conservative and some people are more likely to be liberal. So what does that say about free will? Other people have looked at um, – uh, like sociologists have looked at the extent to which uh, your tastes are totally dictated by your culture that you're a part of. Yeah. And as sort of longshoreman and social critic Eric Hoffer has famously said, you know, when people are free to do anything they want, they generally copy their friends. So there's like Here an enormous liter- 
Yes. There's an enormous literature on how you think that you're choosing to buy an iPhone because that's what you want, but actually you have no free will at all. It's all your friends are buying an iPhone and you're just copying them. And even other more remarkable work in the neurosciences that show that people often start actions before they're even aware of them. Um, so there are these – and it's not just ref- reflexes and, and uh, they're using certain uh, detailed recordings from neurons in the brain. So there's all this literature that suggests that we have much less free will than we think and many people have looked at our work on social contagion and said that what we have done is sort of delivered a whack to free will and said that you know, sort of somehow denigrated it or – or, yeah, or, no, I, I don't or see it limited that way. its importance. I see yeah, it. But I see you in the category of this social virtue of teaching and social learning. Yes. Like giving us yes. knowledge that can be a form of power to exercise yes. free will. Yes, that's exactly sort of where I was going, which yeah. is that that it, that it all of what I just said is true, but it's equally the case that when you take an action in your life, what our work suggests is that you can affect dozens, hundreds, sometimes thousands of other people, when you act in a nice way to other people, when you teach other people things, when you're cooperative or loving or, or, or show concern for your community, these effects are magnified. And so actually, if anything, I think the importance of free will is raised, not lowered by these discoveries, because it shows that people who take volitional acts of their own will to improve the state of affairs around them can actually have much more, uh, much larger and more dramatic impacts than they had appreciated. And so, and this too is connected to our embeddedness in social groups. So, so right. yes, I think that, I think that free will is important. And I think that people making choices about how to live their lives and live with others is crucially important. And that we have the responsibility to, to, to work with the better angels of our nation. Yeah. I mean, I really care about scholarship and ideas and 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 true knowledge and but I also care about whether those things are lived, right? And whether mm. they are also brought in relationship with lived experience. And mm. it I and I think one reason I want to interview you is because I I really see that in your mm-hmm. life and um I was very touched by the dedication of your book, um, Blueprint, Mm. The World is Better the Closer You Are to Erica, about your wife. Mm. Um, I remember actually when we met at a conference, I just through the way you mentioned her, I I could tell that Mm. That this was a very loving relationship, and Mm. the two of you, you, that you also had adopted siblings growing up, and and you all have uh, several children, Mm. older children, Mm. and have adopted a a foster son. yeah. yeah I, yes, yes. Erica and I have embarked on a new adventure. We've just adopted a ten-year-old boy who we adore. Yeah. We've been foster parents for a while, and um, and this little child needed a home, and we decided we would take him in. We, uh, my other children, are twenty-two and twenty-five and twenty-seven. Yeah. So it's. Um, but I, I grew up in. My mother had three biological children and adopted two others. And in fact, I grew up in an interracial family. So I have a a black sister and a Chinese brother. So it was quite. Um, you know. And my wife's sister has adopted a child. Uh, so adoption is is also a feature of our extended family. And it feels to me consonant with all these things we've been talking about, about our our very interesting capacity as a species to love and to befriend um, beyond biological kinship. 
Yeah, well, we didn't talk about this, and I talk a little bit about it in the book, but we're also unusual as a species in that we engage in something called alloparenting, which is that we uh, often raise or are kind to un- genetically unrelated members of our species. Elephants also do this, by the way. So yeah. elephant matriarchs will often take care of young elephants in their groups that are not their own offspring. Um, and and uh, this has also been seen in certain cetacean species. So it is it, this, 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 this capacity to, uh, of alloparenting and, again, to show a solicitous concern for people who are not kin um, is – is a I think a very important part of us as a as an animal as a as mm-hmm. a species, mm-hmm. and uh, and also plays into a is is connected to all the other ideas we've been discussing. Um, I you have this uh, first of all I want to say do we can we go over a couple minutes because I think we started a few minutes late just like no that's totally fine that okay? and also uh, since you're going to edit out I'm assuming this little interlude that we're having right now uh, totally fine to take your uh, more time and I just wanted to ask. Will you edit this a little bit, and then, and if so, when will you broadcast? Yes. It? Well, we'll we'll let you know when when it's going right. to be broadcast. Um, we will edit it because we we are on public radio, so there's kind of a 52 minute uh, version, edited version, and then oh. we also do release the unedited in our podcast feed. I see. Yeah. Uh, unedited? You mean wholly unedited or very lightly edited? Um, wholly. And well, will we kind of yeah? Generally, no, completely unedited. Although we'll we won't start. You know, we'll there. And there you'll may take be up some, this part that we're talking about right now, obviously. Uh, well, we might. This part might be in there, but but the, <laughs> oh, like the very right. beginning. <laughs> might. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, all right. Yeah. So that's all right. Well, let me know well when it's broadcast. Uh, oh, or we absolutely or no. We'll give you okay. lots of advance notice. Um, all right, that's fine. Yeah. Okay. Um, I kind of wanted to talk about your passion about maple syrup. I don't know if we have time. Does that have anything to do with? All of these things we've well, been the maple about. syrup thing is um, that's interesting. You asked that actually. Um, so, you know, I grew up in the Mediterranean, and for me, olives and figs and pomegranates and lemons are holy fruits, especially pomegranates. It's my father has a 150-year-old pomegranate tree in his house in Crete, and it's a magical spot. And um, the – but, you know, I made my life in New England, and you can't get figs or pomegranates right. in New England. And we bought a house in Vermont, and on our house was a 100-year-old sugar shack, and we, there were some old ancient apple trees on our property, and we, we planted more fruit trees when we first moved in. And um, I arranged to have the sugar shack uh, sort of rebuilt or, or restored using um, traditional techniques, and I decided to get into – because I couldn't have – figs and pomegranates and olives, I decided to get into maple maple sugar. And uh, and so in March, every year when the sap runs, about three weeks, late March, early April, I, uh, I have 40 taps now in the – it's called the sugar bush uh, where the trees are located, uh, the cops of trees of maple – of sugar maple trees. And uh, I tap the trees. I have 40 taps and I collect the sap and boil it. It's very simple in many ways. Actually, it's deceptively simple, um, to be honest, because there are all these, it's like a Japanese tea ceremony. You know, there are all these rituals of everything has to be immaculate, but you can't use soap to clean it. Um, because if you, when you boil the sap, it gets boiled, condensed down 40 to one. So any tiny amounts of residual soap on any surface will contaminate your sap. So it's all about elbow grease and cleanliness. And, and then you have to 
there's, I mean, I could talk forever about this. If my children hear this, they'll laugh hilariously that you asked, <laughs> that you stumbled into this. They're like, let me tell you about okay, uh, I can just wooden, see it. Yeah. wooden taps that were designed by yeah. the Native Americans. Right. You know? <laughs> um, but anyway, yes, so I'm very into this and um, I see it as a, you know, a time of year when I can, you know, be in nature and, um, and uh, do something that's very sweet. Mm. Well, you know, I, I think that does point back to um, – it's not a contradiction. It's just kind of a uh, – it's not even a tension. An interplay here between the the science of our evolutionary development and the fact that um, – with with these with these qualities you've been we've been speaking about this social suite, <clears throat> love, friendship, cooperation, teaching, and social learning, social um, networks, a social, bunch of things, identity. Yeah, that yeah. these things are. It's not that they're easy or or always fun or always pleasurable, but there is also a great measure of pleasure in them. Right, mm. something not at all clinical. Um, mm-hmm. Well, generally speaking, um, one of the ways that you can make an animal do more of something is to have it evolve so that it sees that thing as being pleasurable. Mm-hmm. And so that so kind that of warm sense. glow, yeah, that kind mm-hmm. of warm glow we all feel in the company of our friends, I think is an evolved capacity. We seek out our friendships because we feel good. Yeah. When we are with our friends. And actually and being kind and being generous, those yes. things also make us feel good. We don't always yes. do them. So I, so I just wanted this kind of circles around to me to this uh, phrase or this word I think you've coined, which I, I find very intriguing, of sociodicy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I studied theology and so – but I don't, I don't think everybody who doesn't study theology, which is most people uh, learn the language – or theology learns mm-hmm. the language of mm-hmm. theodicy, which mm-hmm. is just this ancient question, very important in the Enlightenment and in Western civilization of how can you believe in a – good God if terrible yes. things happen. And, How can we justify right, God if, if right. especially an omnipotent, omniscient, uh, beneficent deity, given mm-hmm. how much suffering and awfulness we see in the world? Right. How do we explain the origins of evil? Right. And sociodicy is your idea. Yeah. So how can we vindicate a confidence in the goodness of society despite the manifest evil in society? I mean, I, I'm well aware. I'm not, you know, a Dr. Pangloss. I, I'm well aware that every century, every millennium is replete with horrors. You know, we have slavery and pogroms and colonialism and violence and hatred and venal actions of all kinds. And um, But equally, we have goodness and of the kinds that we've been discussing today. And so for me, this issue of sociodicy is a vindication of our, of our confidence in the goodness of society despite these horrors. Mm-hmm. And it's not dissimilar in my view than the theological questions of theodicy. So that's why I suggest that, that what I'm after is a kind of sociodicy, a kind of vindication in our confidence in the goodness of society. Kind of a sense that – an argument really that, that the goodness outweighs – uh, the evil. Well, or the more than that, because I don't think that people, in, when they resolve the questions of theodicy, say, mm-hmm. "Well, God does more good than evil." Uh, I think they kind of come to other resolutions of the dilemma of the origins of evil. And 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 what I'm trying to highlight is that the that even our evil qualities are 
features of our mm-hmm. humanity, and mm-hmm. they are part. In, in fact, we often these good qualities that we've evolved are in response to those evil qualities. I mean, for I'll just give you one very quick example. Yeah, human beings have very few, if any, natural predators. The leading killer of human beings is other human beings. Right. And so right. we've had to evolve to cope with this threat to our survival, hmm. which is each other. Yeah. And so we have evolved. We have evolved these capacities that make us capable of a convivial existence by and large. I'm not saying we don't kill each other. We do. Yeah. I recognize that. But they're all connected. You see, they're all intermingled with each other. And I think that we can gain better insights into our our common humanity, our shared humanity, by by taking more seriously and focusing more attention on these wonderful qualities, these wonderful capacities that we have evolved to have. I mean, I, I, I finished the book, if I might, I'll just, uh, I'll just, just read it because uh, sure. otherwise I'll, I'll butcher the, uh, I'll butcher the <laughs> sentence, yeah. which, you know, I actually, I wrote the book over 10 years and I, I wrote the sentence about halfway through and then I couldn't, I, as soon as I thought of it, I thought, oh, this will be the end of the book. And mm-hmm. so, and so this is how I finish. I say, we should be humble in the face of temptations to engineer society in opposition to our instincts. Fortunately, we do not need to exercise any such authority in order to have a good life. The arc of our evolutionary history is long, but it bends towards goodness. Yeah. And I really believe that. And I, you know, I, I wrote a book about wisdom a few years ago and realized after the fact that I'd never defined wisdom. And so that was one of the first things people would ask me when I was speaking about it afterwards. And and what I what I realized when I when I sat down to think about you know a definition of wisdom, as opposed to knowledge or accomplishment, which mm. which so a wise life can certainly contain knowledge and accomplishment, and those are things you can point at and quantify, or mm. you can point at and you can you can you can just describe. But I think that the that the measure of a wise life is the imprint it has on other lives around it, right? Like when, mm. when any of us start speaking about the wise people we've known, that's kind of mm-hmm. the story we're telling. And mm-hmm. your, 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 your thinking about <laughs> the natural social networks that predated social media by that hundreds of thousands of years, um, it, it, this, the, 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 the primacy of friendship and love and these, these qualities we have that we don't stop to, to treasure and to take us seriously actually helps me see, uh, helps me think differently. You know, helps is kind of good, gives nuance to that idea of what is mm-hmm. wisdom in our midst. It's it's also mm-hmm. a function of that that wise people emerge from that. Mm-hmm. I would agree. I wonder how you, at this point in your life, um, would. This is a vast question, this question of what it means to be human. But how would you start to think that, to to answer that, just kind of think that through right now? What you've learned about what it means to be human. I, you know, I love that fraying, you know, what are you going to do, that phrase, what are you going to do with your one wild and precious life? Is that right? Yeah, Mm -hmm. I, I, um, and I've always been of the belief that, you know, if possible, and not everyone has this opportunity, although everyone can, I think, in some measure. I mean, even Viktor Frankl in, in the concentration camps in Man's Search for Meaning writes a little bit about this a related idea is to try to live a life that is what I would call grand and romantic. 
you know, which is to is to be in tune with and aware of the opportunities for transcendence, you know, to move beyond the everyday desires, needs, uh, you know, very physical uh, reality that we all face, of course, and see the fact that there are other things, whether it's love and friendship that we've been talking about today or other sorts of things that are take us outside of our corporal, um, uh, you know, bodies. Mm. So I think, you know, I think that, I think that cultivating that capacity, cultivating the ability as you go through your day to see the opportunities for transcendence is a wonderful way to live. And I think, I think it's possible to do that in, in in almost any circumstance. Um, And I think it makes life much much better and more enjoyable. I think I think it's so interesting that you're using the word transcendence to describe um, actions and capacities that, as you point out, are embedded within us, and yet at the same time take us beyond our ourselves, our our kind of selfish. Yeah, I mean, think about contained. think about how easy it is. You can go through your day, you can encounter a homeless person and, you know, you might ignore them because you've been hit up a lot of times or you might give them a dollar or two. Why not give them $40? You know, think about that. Now, I understand some people say this person is a substance user or mm-hmm. you're not necessarily helping them and I and – I, and I, but I'm just saying that's like an opportunity face-to-face to do something nice to another human being that, you know, we, you could afford $40, mm-hmm. many people, not all people, of course, mm-hmm. or – or some, or just, just the, you know, I mean, these are all, these are all trite. Even these are all commonplace things to say. But just being nice in everyday encounters, it's just such a better way to live. I'll tell you, I, um, I was very affected, and I haven't been able to find the source for this. But when I was in medical school, so this was in the 1980s, I, I heard or read an interview. I think these Buddhist monks had come to MIT, and it was in the early days of MRI scanning, and they were scanning their brains or something and looking at how the discipline of meditation had changed the the brains of these monks. And and, uh, one of these guys was interviewed about how he copes with moving through the world and all the kind of knocks and slights and things that happen in anyone's day. And he told the following story about how he was constantly re-narrating whatever he encountered. He was always trying to see it in a good light. And this being in Boston, someone said, well, what if, you know, someone cuts you off in traffic? Right. <laughs> and, and the mug said, he said, he said, well, he goes, I would imagine that in the backseat of the car, there was a woman delivering a baby. <laughs> and, and the husband was driving the car. And he was desperate to get his wife to the hospital because a new life was being born. Right. And, and that all of a sudden, I wouldn't think of it as being cut off in traffic anymore. Mm-hmm. And I heard this story and I pulled over and I was like, I think I was in the car. Either I read it. I don't remember exactly the, how I encountered the story. And I was like, oh, my God, I want to be like that guy. Right. You know, like, and and uh, if possible. Now, you know, I, I don't have the discipline of a Buddhist monk. But but I think that's the right way to be, honestly. I really do. And, and this is not – I want to emphasize this is not in a kind of Pollyanna-ish way of, yep. you know – ignoring all the evil in the world or, or, or you know, not defending yourself or any of those things. I'm just saying that if possible, in moving through your day, so much better to see it that way. Yeah. Let me just ask you one more question. As, it, mm. as you kind of, just like as you walk, move through your life this week, you know, what, what, what makes you despair and where are you finding hope? Well, um, 
Uh, boy, I don't. I mean, I um, I could. That's a big question, and I could say a lot about our contemporary politics and uh, income inequality in our society, and some of the things we alluded to earlier. Um, climate change. Uh, you know, I was very affected by. Um, I watched this movie that uh, the showrunner is Craig Mays, and I watched Chernobyl, uh, this TV yeah. series, which had a yeah. huge effect on my thinking in a number of ways, uh, both about nuclear power and about about mendacity and ideology yeah. and how people are blinded by ideology. Yeah. Um, I think that um, the thing that concerns me most is this notion that's so ascendant among so many sectors of our society, including the far left and the far right, that that there is no truth, that um, that everything is subjective, that there's no objectivity that ex- that is is there or is is possible, and I think this is a very dangerous idea um, that is that if if allowed to become ascendant, will lead to the destruction of many things, and we see this in efforts by Russia to in you know to affect our. To, to create propaganda. I mean, one of the classic descriptions of what totalitarian states do is they either try to suppress information so people don't have access to information or they flood the information landscape with so many lies that you can no, no, no longer know the truth. Right. Both, are, both are threatening to the ability of people to appreciate the truth. So I see this, I see this so much in our society today where – for I, for various ideological and other reasons, people are unwilling or unable to to approach the world and say, okay, we're going to try to discover the truth. And we might disagree about what to do about that, but at least we can commit to a process where we can agree on what is and is not real or true. And, um, and, and people who adopt a philosophical stance that it's not even possible to know the truth I think are wrong philosophically and scientifically – but I also think they are dangerous, and I see a lot of that throughout the political spectrum and in many groups in our society today, and this is the thing that – this particular thing that concerns me the most at the moment. Right. What about hope? Where's that? Hope. I mean, I think hope is, you know, the sun also rises. I mean, you know, I think uh, – you know, I think, uh, you know, the people have been forecasting doom since time immemorial, and the, the world rotates and the sun comes up. You know, um, and I couldn't have written nor would I have written the book that I did if I wasn't in, uh, totally optimistic about the capacity of human beings to endure and to flourish. Mm. And despite, you know, as we were talking about sociodicy, despite our limitations. So I am fundamentally optimistic about our prospects. Yes, I am. Okay. Um, thank you so much. This has been really enjoyable. And, Thank um, you so much, Krista, for having me. I'm very grateful. digging into your work. Yeah. So um, we'll have that coffee about the Stasi one day. And we'll Please, let you when know. you come to okay. – yes, when you come to campus, just email me and you can okay. come to the lab and we'll show you a few things as well. Okay. Uh, all right. And we'll let you know what's happening with the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.